0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: The information you hear in this podcast is for your education and entertainment purposes only. The ABC accepts no responsibility for improvements in your performance at work, advancement in your career, better relationships with your colleagues, or simply being a whole lot happier at work. Listen at your own risk, but share with your friends.
2: I'm Lisa Leong. When's the last time you cracked up laughing at work? What made you laugh? But more importantly, how did it make you feel? What if I told you that humour can be a superpower that is vastly underleveraged in most workplaces today? With me to convince us are Naomi Bagdonis and Dr Jennifer Alker. Naomi is an improv addict by night, executive coach by day, and Jennifer is a behavioural scientist and the least funny person in her family according to her kids. Together they teach the course Humour Serious Business at Stanford Graduate School of Business and their book is Humour Seriously.
0: Welcome. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having us. We're delighted to be here.
2: Naomi, often in business, being serious is synonymous with having gravitas
1: and being funny is considered risky. Is that wrong? You know this gets at the heart of the work that we're trying to do, which is that people hold these misperceptions about what humor is and its role in business. So we actually surveyed thousands of executives to answer the single question, what holds you back from using humor at work? And what we uncovered were what we call the four deadly humor myths. And so, by the way, if you want people to pay attention, just insert the word deadly and it'll really work. (laughs) Um, so those four <laughs> those four myths, the born with it myth, which is the idea that, you know, people think that humor is a personality trait, not a skill. We've got the humor equals comedy myth that you've got to be telling jokes to have joy in your life. And that's really not it. The third is the serious business myth that humor is the enemy of the serious. And fourth is the failure myth that the risk of failed humor is just too too great at work. And in particular, the serious business myth is the one that holds people back from bringing their sense of humor to work. And in fact, what we find in our research and just in our day-to-day is that the balance of gravity and levity give power to both. That if you're able to pursue really serious missions that you care about deeply and you're able to to do so while staying light, while not taking yourself too seriously, then you will be more successful.
2: Can you explain a bit more about what you mean
0: by levity there? Absolutely. So One of the things that is important to debunk is what exactly is humor? Mm. And so a lot of times people think it's, you know, the same thing as Naomi said, as comedy, but that's not the case. It's not about... Necessarily, you know, using the secrets of comedians to land a joke, although we do go into that in chapter three in great depth. <laughs> and it's not even, you know, the same thing as creating cultures of levity. So levity is just this ability for those individuals, you know who lead with levity to create the opportunity for teams to actually, you know, work in in lighter ways. So it's not about using jokes as much as it is is creating, a culture of of lightness, of ease. And so it can define organisational culture as well as even family culture.
2: So, uh, Naomi, humour can be one of the hardest things to get right. What is it that actually makes something funny?
1: So we've been thinking about this in two ways. There's a technical answer and there's sort of a philosophical answer. And so technically we talk about these two principles of comedy that all humor stems from truth and misdirection. So first we've got truth at the heart of comedy. So we often laugh because we think I do that or I've seen people do that, or you know that actually resonates <laughs> with my experience of the world. And then the second is surprise. So we often laugh because we're led in one direction and then it's revealed that we're actually going in a totally separate direction. So surprise and misdirection is really key. So I'll give an example. Yeah. Imagine that you that someone arrives late to a dinner party, and you're halfway through the first course, and they walk in, and they say, "I'm so sorry, I'm late. I didn't want to come." <laughs> so this yes. is great. I'm glad. I'm glad you love it, right? So this is yes. Um, the truth is obvious, Ooh, right? Like we awkward. We've all been <laughs> there. Normally. We've all been on yeah. our couches thinking, "Oh man, I'm going to be late, but I really don't want to go." And then the misdirection comes and maybe Lisa, you could help me understand where does the misdirection come in? And sorry, I'm late. I didn't want to come.
2: Oh, because there's a truth bomb in there, but nobody would ever usually say that, but it's super funny.
1: Exactly. No one would ever, (laughs) right. We're expecting, you know, sorry, I'm late. There was traffic. Sorry, I'm late. The zoom link didn't work. A white lie, even. Exactly. Because
2: that's what we would expect.
1: Completely. And so this is the the heart of comedy from a technical perspective is truth and misdirection. There's that answer. The other answer is more philosophical. And this is our belief around what makes something funny is the choice to laugh. So we talk about with our students that this is not just about telling jokes. This is about shifting our mindset and the way that we interact with the world. So... I'll give a small example of this. I was in my local coffee shop the other day and I walked in. You know, I, I paid for my coffee and the guy behind me walked in and the barista said, How are you doing this morning? And he said, Well, I woke up this morning, didn't I? Nice. <laughs> and it was sort of this like dark, you know, I woke up this morning, didn't I? But the barista just gave the most gracious and generous laugh. I mean, she just like, and by the way, I know this woman, she runs the coffee shop down the street. She is an absolute delight of a woman, but she was so generous with her laughter. And that's one thing that I think I certainly benefit from is when someone attempts to be funny be generous with your laughter. You know, that that is part of what <laughs> yeah. we're the work that we're trying to do here is just create an environment where joy comes more easily to people.
2: And I guess it's also a way of perhaps coping and bonding if there's shared experiences that you can joke about.
1: We find that oftentimes it's in these dark moments and, and hard situations. And we talk to emergency room doctors who have been through incredibly um, difficult times and afterwards they're laughing with each other behind the scenes. And it's not because they don't take their work seriously. It's actually the opposite. It's that they take their work so seriously that they need to find ways to cope and ways to um, to help their bodies and their minds be resilient through, through what they're doing.
2: And what about um, those colleagues who think that they're hilarious, but they're not like a uh, David Brent or a Michael Scott from The Office type character?
0: Yes, we all know those. I think one thing that's really interesting is the self-awareness around, you know, whether other people are laughing with you or if you're the only one laughing. And one way to get insight into that is, in your own sense of humor also and how it's landing, is to understand that there's these humor types that are, are quite varied. So one humor type, for example... And we'll ask you later on what you think you are or what you believe you are or the data shows you are. Okay. But one is, you know, the stand-up. And the stand-ups, that's basically these individuals who are natural entertainers who aren't afraid to ruffle a few feathers to get a laugh. They might be more extroverted and they may not be able to read the room necessarily. So like the, you know... The Michael Scott character or those types of individuals might just be actually doing stand-up and thinking they're natural entertainers, but less aware of what others are, how they're reacting to them. But then there's magnets, and they keep things positive, warm, and uplifting, and they avoid controversial or upsetting humor, and they radiate charisma. They oftentimes can really read the room and be aware of how their humor is landing. Then there's snipers. They're edgy, sarcastic, and nuanced. They're unafraid to cross lines in pursuit of a laugh. Sometimes they're hard to make laugh, but when you do, you feel really good. And then there's sweethearts, and they tend to be earnest and honest. They avoid humor that might risk hurting feelings. So their humor often flies under the radar and sometimes is even planned, but it often uplifts. So getting a sense of the, these dimensions, you know, and not just what you are, but what others are around you, tends to actually decrease the risk of using humor at work.
2: I did your quiz.
0: You did. Okay. And Are you going to tell us the answer?
2: Yes. So I am a magnet.
1: (gasps) Oh, Oh, we're in good company. Oh, Naomi, are you a magnet? Yes, I am. We love all humor styles equally.
0: You two are just radiating charisma, both of you,
1: now. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think it's also very context dependent. So for example, we find that sniper and stand-up-type humor can be power-enhancing if you're lower in status. But magnet and sweetheart-style humor can be power-enhancing if you're higher in status. So how this plays out for me personally is when I'm teaching in the classroom at Stanford, I'm almost always using magnet or sweetheart-style humor. So I'm self-deprecating, I'm using, you know... Humor that's more uplifting. But when I am leading a session with a group of executives that is significantly more senior than me, and in a lot of cases, uh, significantly more male than me, in that context where I'm the youngest person in the room, I'm maybe one of the only women in the room, I will often lean on stand up and sniper style humor because of the innate power imbalance that exists in age and in other social dimensions you know, that are so, so hard-coded into our brains. And this was especially power for, powerful for me when I was earlier in my career, when I was in my late 20s and I was leading these sessions, I found actually a, a well-placed jab or sort of, <laughs> uh, you know, a little bit of teasing could actually go a really long way and help me.
2: And Naomi, can you share your example when you were working as a consultant and presenting in front of an alpha male?
1: I Indeed. Indeed, he was an alpha male. So this was um, <laughs> I was, I was, again, pretty early in my career. I think I was mid-20s and I had this real stretch opportunity. I was leading a workshop for a board and this group of executives, Craig was sort of the most senior person in the room. Everyone sort of looked to him and Craig was just just sort of um hands behind his head, lean back, really like showing off his status in a very obvious way. And he was also pretty skeptical. Yeah, I can imagine it already. Totally, yes, you can totally imagine it. Yeah. And he was also pretty skeptical about what I was there to talk about. So I was running a team dynamics and empathy workshop where I was talking about how do you build more effective relationships with people. So I was halfway through my presentation and Craig cut me off and said, can you get to the part where you just get my people to do what I want without me having to tell them? You know, something like that. And it was just like, you know, a record screeched, everyone looked at me, looked at Craig and you could cut the the tension with a knife. And, you know, I'd been doing improv at night. So without thinking, I just shot back, well, you know, you're thinking of the session that I write on mind control, come back next week. And I'm happy to have you join that session. (laughs) Now, objectively, this is not a funny joke, but in business, the bar is extremely, extremely low. And, you know, I was kind of digging into him. And then that moment, the dynamic completely shifted in the room. So everyone laughed and Craig uncrossed his arms behind his head and he said, I kid you not, I respect you, you can continue, were his words. So it was, for me, it was really this moment of, recognizing, oh my gosh, this thing that I have been trying so hard to hide, you know, my sense of humor or even these skills from improv can actually be a really valuable way to diffuse tension, to enhance my own status and power, and frankly, just to navigate awkward situations at work.
2: You're listening to This Working Life, where we're striving to validate our feeble attempts at humour on our show through 2020. So we've found two experts from Stanford Graduate School of Business to help. Dr Jennifer Orker is social psychologist and professor of marketing, and Naomi Bagdonis is a lecturer and executive coach. Jennifer, you're a behavioural scientist. Tell me about what happens in our brains when we perceive something as funny.
0: When we laugh with someone, whether it be through a screen or two feet apart, our brains release a cocktail of healthy hormones that suppress cortisol and increase dopamine and oxytocin. And oxytocin, by the way, is the same hormone that's released during sex and childbirth. So having sex, giving birth, and laughing with colleagues in a Zoom meeting have a lot in common. We're all building trust and no one's wearing pants. (laughs) But... But it's what's also fascinating is that these chemical shifts have dramatic health implications. There is one study, and it was a large-scale study done in Norway, conducted over the course of 15 years, that found that people with a sense of humor have a 30% better chance of survival if severe disease strikes, which is really remarkable if you look at the global pandemic and how it's impacting us It really is a moment in time where it's, you know, life or death. And, you know, mental well-being, our depression rates are increasing, our anxiety is increasing. And so if you think about what's happening in the world right now, the use of humor, you know, of not taking yourself too seriously, being able to be on the precipice of a smile versus a frown through these tools that we teach at Stanford can be really important for our health.
2: And in fact, Naomi, when you were um, helping Jennifer at one of her lectures, it was through bringing humor in that you actually help people even learn sort of more effectively.
1: Yeah. So Jennifer mentioned the brain cocktail that happens when we laugh. Well, one of the things that we release is dopamine. And we know that dopamine is connected to memory and information retention. So if someone is laughing while they're listening to you, then they are actually retaining more of what you're saying. And so this is not just a way to have more fun while we're presenting or while we're, you know, at work. It's also a really powerful way to have people remember what we've said.
2: And Jennifer, you say that humour is a powerful tool for accomplishing serious work. So what have studies found about using humour at work and what it can achieve apart from avoiding resting boss face?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, first of all, it's, it's really important to know when people use humor at work, it doesn't even need to be good humor. It just has to be <laughs> not inappropriate humor. Mm. The bar is so low. They're 27% more respected, and they're also seen as more competent and confident. And in this set of studies that our colleagues ran, even when the humor was not good— you get this boost of respect and competence and confidence. There's another study that showed that employees who rate their bosses um, as having a sense of humor, and it can be any sense of humor. It doesn't even have to be good again. They report to be 15% more satisfied and engaged in their jobs. And they rate their bosses as 27% more motivating and admired. And, you know, now, if you're not into being motivating or admired (laughs) or even having engaged employees, there is still a role for humor in your cold, cold heart (laughs) Um, because it also translates to more negotiating power. So Naomi and I have this favorite study uh, that we share with our students where researchers asked subjects to negotiate with an art dealer who was actually a Confederate a research assistant over a purchase price of a piece of art. Mm -hmm. And then half of these art dealers made the final offer above the last bid, stating simply, my final offer is X. And then the other half offered the same amount, but they said with a smile, my final offer is X and I'll throw in my pet frog. And the dealers who included the frog line were paid 18% more for their art. Really? And buyers later reported enjoying the task more and feeling less tension in the negotiation. So you can even get people to pay more and they won't even be mad at you for it.
2: And what do you think it is about the throwing in of the frog? Is it that it makes it more human rather than just about numbers?
0: Definitely humor. Humanizes or can humanize. It also can diffuse tension in moments where that exists. And then just to your last point with Naomi and her teaching, you know, when you use humor, it's also more memorable and differentiating. So it's, we really think of humor as this multiplier that this simple line of humor can increase the impact of whatever you're doing for multiple reasons.
2: Now, Naomi, can you share the story of Ben Bernanke's first day on the job, please?
1: Sure. So this was, I believe, in 2005, and Ben Bernanke was working in the White House on the Council of Economic Advisors for President Bush, and uh, it was his first major presentation in the Oval Office. So he was understandably quite nervous. There were a bunch of senior people in the room. There was Vice President Dick Cheney. Carl Rowe. There was Candy Wolf. So just uh, Al Hubbard. So the stakes were pretty high and it was, uh, you know, he was nervous. So he got into the room. The chairs were all arranged in a, in a big circle and Ben Bernanke sat down. And as he was about to start his presentation, he crossed his legs and he started. Well, President Bush interrupted him in the first sentence of his presentation with this really lighthearted line. He said, Ben, are you wearing a gray suit with tan socks? <laughs> and, you know, this Cold is day. sort of, it was lighthearted. <laughs> and, and you know, President Bush was known for sort of jabbing at his em- employees in a really lighthearted way, but it really threw Ben Bernanke off. So he was a bit flustered. He made his way through the rest of the meeting, but people could tell that it sort of threw him off his rhythm. And so Keith Hennessy and Al Hubbard afterwards huddled up together and they were like, okay, we need to figure out a way to make this awkward situation into something that we can really bond about. You know, how do we celebrate Ben? How do we make him feel part of the team? And so they concocted this elaborate plan. And weeks later, when it was time for the next briefing that Ben Bernanke was going to lead, they had done all these behind the scenes things and uh, they all showed up in the room. And as Bernanke was about to get started, he crossed his legs. And then at the same time, everyone else in the room crossed their legs to reveal that they were all wearing tan socks. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so, you know, President Bush, he, he sort of smiled, but he looks over at Dick Cheney and he goes, Dick, can you believe these idiots? And then he looks <laughs> down and he realizes Dick Cheney is also wearing tan socks. <laughs> He throws his nice. hands up in the air and, you know, everyone sort of burst out laughing.
2: And what do you think that does? That kind of bonds everyone, doesn't it?
1: It does. It really does. And that was Keith Hennessy's point as well. He, he said, you know, I believe that it made it easier for us to function together as a team, to work together for the president and on behalf of the country. And so it's just this idea of when the stakes are high, when you're doing really, really important work, How do you be most effective? And one of the ways to do that is to have this culture of joy and levity.
2: Let's zoom out a little bit. So business is now quite global and we're doing a lot of things on video conference. When we're dealing with humour, it can be quite culturally
0: specific. So how do we navigate different cultures, do you think? One thing that's important to know when you think about cultural differences in humour, what makes people laugh, is not just thinking back about these different styles. So for example, you know, sweetheart humor and magnet humor tend to be much more sort of popular and used in Japan or collectivist cultures, whereas stand-up humor tends to be more embraced in individualistic cultures like the United States. But also an awareness of what actually makes people laugh. One of your earlier questions about, you know, what makes people laugh is often, you know, truth and misdirection. Or surprise. And that is culturally robust. You know, being able to see something that's astute and truthful and maybe absurd, but defines life. And then, you know, having some way of like disrupting people's expectations. So the formula that underlies humor is often more culturally sort of similar or robust, whereas the styles might differ.
2: It can sometimes be sort of treacherous using humor at work if you don't really have the right mindset. So I've probably experienced times when it was hiding bad behavior and the retort is, you know, that was just a joke. I was just kidding.
1: So what's your response to that? Humor is not just a reflection of our collective psyche. It also helps to shape it. And this is incredible research around prejudice, norms, theory, what, do, what happens to people, what happens to our brains when we hear humor that is offensive. And it's, it actually can be quite dangerous. And so in this situation, when our humor fails or offends, to your point, it can be really tempting to brush it off by, oh, you know, I was just joking, or, you know, he didn't get the joke, or she's being too sensitive instead of stopping and considering that it might actually be our problem. And so in these moments, we tell our students to really lean in, trust the other person's reaction, understand and acknowledge your mistake, reflect on your bright spots, and then really go out of your way to to make it right with that person. Because it's in these moments where we cross a line and offend that we can really understand and make sure that we're calibrated for humor to work well in the future.
2: So if you do unintentionally cross that fine line between funny and inappropriate, yeah. how can you recover?
1: Name it. I I just realized I think that was inappropriate. I'm really sorry. You know, Or if someone brings it to you and says, hey, I found that inappropriate, say, oh my gosh, I am so sorry. Tell me why that was. Tell me more about that. Help me understand so that I can never make that sort of mistake again. I mean, we have a great story in the book about A CEO who did this, you know, he he made a joke about someone who he had just fired, and one of his employees stood up and said, "I didn't think that was funny." And to his credit, he stopped in his tracks. He said, "You're absolutely right. I'm so sorry. That came from a a place of insecurity and of me wanting to cut the tension. And I'm I'm really really sorry." And uh, to his employee's credit, someone else said, "You know, that's okay. Why don't you start over and try again?" So <laughs> it, it can be really powerful just to acknowledge it with deep humility and empathy. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Stanford Business School lecturers
2: Naomi Bagdonis and Dr. Jennifer Orker, and their book is Humour Seriously. If you enjoyed today's show, please send it to a friend and take a minute to leave a review. We really appreciate it because it helps spread the word. And if you want to see what humour type you are, there's a link on our program page. Thanks to This Working Life producer, Maria Tickle, who happily admits she's a sniper. I'm Lisa Leong, and until next week, keep (laughs) working. Sniper.
1: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the
0: ABC Listen app.